0: All right, where to start? Getting real. There's a poem by Hafiz that says, You Say, I Say. You say, how can I find God? And I say, the friend is in the lining of your pocket, the curved pink wall in your belly. Sober up, steady your aim, reach in. Turn the universe and that beautiful rascal inside out. You say, that sounds preposterous. I really don't believe God is in there. I say, well then, why not try the Himalayas? You could get naked and pretend to be an exalted yogi, eat bark and snow for 40 years or so, and then you might think, hey, old man, why don't you go shovel some snow yourself? It's a nice idea. We always feel like we have to go do something grand to find God. We have to do something profound and big. We want it to become a, I don't know, Swami Prabhupada used to say that ego gets in the way a lot in spiritual life because uh, I was talking to him about running a, uh, in in San Francisco they have a retreat center up in Marin County. It's a beautiful place. If you've never been there, you should go do a retreat. 2,000 acres of beautiful forest on the coast. And just about five minutes down the road is the Buddhist uh, retreat. And uh, they charge uh, (laughs) I'm not promoting anything, I'm just telling a story. They charge eighty dollars a night for their stay and the Vedanta center is free every night. But the Buddhist place is full all the time and the Vedanta center always has at least one room available for us. And at the Buddhist center they were doing, they they do these weekend retreats, three to five days, sometimes a ten day Vipassana retreats or meditation retreats, where they just go in for eight hours a day in silence and meditation, and do these intense workshops, and they're always sold out. And so I was telling Swami Prabhutananda, I said, Maharaj, I said, why don't we offer something like that, you know, for for the devotees, since it seems to be a very popular thing to do? And he uh, got serious for a moment. and was quiet, and he said, Do you see? It is better to do a little bit every day. And to prepare the mind in a permanent way, than to jump in and do a great deal at one time, he says. Because if the mind isn't pure, then what happens? Is you spend ten days in meditation, you get all of that inner energy welled up, and you know all that spiritual energy. And he says, if you're lusty, if if lust is your problem, after that ten days, lust is going to be a really big problem. If you're an angry person, anger is going to become a huge problem. He says, so it's better to do it in small doses to purify the mind, to steady the mind, so that it's, it's stable and it's not emotionally affected and not affected by your desires and your wants. Otherwise, you get yourself into trouble. And so I think about that poem there like that. We want, we want to go do heroic things, you know, out of the ordinary things. And that's the problem is that they're out of the ordinary if, if we were regularly meditating like that and doing hours of work a day, then a 10-hour Vipassana retreat will do great benefit for you. But if you don't have that steady purifying practice on a daily basis to bring your mind to that equanimous state, uh, it's not going to be helpful and can be very very unhelpful. So that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about today. <laughs> Just a little trip to the side and a memory of Swami Prabhutananda for me. This morning, I want to talk about getting real. Uh, you know, Swami A. said something, I, I think it was Thursday night, that really caught my, no, it was Friday night, caught my attention. He says, you know, Wednesday night, we talk about uh, the Viveka Chudamani. So we're talking about the oneness, the Advaita idea, everything being one. And then on Friday night, we read from the gospel, and we've got, you know, uh, God is incarnation and friend and walking with us and helping us out. And how do we bring those things together? You know, how do we... How do we, as Vedantins, in a practical way, uh, bring that into life? How how do you bring Advaita to life? How do you express oneness in this apparent world of multiplicity where there's so many of us? So we're going to touch on some of that today, looking at some things that uh, Vivekananda said and and Ramakrishna and uh, some things that Paul said in, in the New Testament about it. I'm going to start with Matthew, uh, because this is kind of where the rubber hits the highway, hits the road. Matthew 7, Jesus is talking, and he says, Everyone who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and it beat against that house, and yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on that rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain comes down, the streams rise, and the winds blow, and they beat against that house, and it falls with a great crash. So this idea of building on the rock versus building on the sand... When I read that as a Vedantin, I immediately thought of uh, Thakur when he says, you know, that this world of change where everything is constantly changing, you know, your mind is changing all the time, your body is changing all the time. The days, you know, you, first thing you do in the morning is check the news to see what changed from yesterday, you know, sometimes with great horror, sometimes with some excitement. But always, always kind of counting on that change and watching that change, engaging that change. And when, when Jesus is talking to us and saying, build your house on the rock, not on the, on the sand, he's telling you, build on that unchangeful self, that unchanging self that's within you, that constant, that steadiness. And what is it? That's that sat which I talk until I'm blue in the face about, you know. That, that love, that, that intelligence, that existence, which are the three fundamental components of that image of God that's within you. He's saying, build your life on that. Make that first. Don't be, don't be your engineer first. Don't be your lifeguard first. Don't be a husband first. Be that first. Be loving, be intelligent, and be. Be present. You know, be, fully, be fully present with people in the moment, with everything in the moment. He's advising us to, to pull your attention out of the changing world. Place it on that inner witness that's within you that's been looking out through your eyes from the day you were born and probably many lifetimes before that. Vivekananda goes and he gives a great summary of Vedanta. So with that in mind, I'm going to read the summary of Vedanta according to uh, Vivekananda. The essence of Vedanta is that there is but one being and that every soul is that being in full not a part of that being. All the sun is reflected in each dewdrop. Appearing in time, space, and causality, this being is man as we know him. But behind all appearance is that one reality. Unselfishness is the denial of that lower or apparent self. We have to free ourselves from this miserable dream that we are these bodies. We must know the truth. I am he. We are not drops to fall into the ocean and be lost. Each one of us is the whole, the infinite ocean, and will know it when we are released from these fetters of illusion. Infinity cannot be divided. The one without a second can have no second. All is that one. This knowledge will come to all, but we should struggle to attain it now because until we have it, we cannot really give mankind the best of help. The Jivan Mukta, the man who is living free, or the one who knows, he alone is able to give real love, to give real charity, to give real truth. And it is truth alone that makes us free. Desire makes slaves of us. It is the insatiable tyrant and gives its victims no rest but the jivan mukta has conquered all desire by rising to the knowledge that he is the one and there is nothing left to wish for. The mind brings before us all our delusions, body, sex, creed, caste, bondage, so we have to tell the truth to the mind incessantly until it is made to realize it. Our real nature is all bliss, and all the pleasure we know is but a reflection, an atom. That, that bliss we get from touching our real nature. That is beyond both pleasure and pain. It is the witness of the universe, the unchanging reader before whom the turn <laughs> it is the unchanging reader before whom the turn leaves the book of life. Through practice comes yoga. Through yoga comes knowledge, through knowledge comes love, and through love, bliss. So you see, we've been duped like a dream, like a dreamer laying in our bed. We've believed ourselves to be a character in a dream. And this is our dream. Not so bad this morning. You guys are looking pretty good for a dream. And we have to, we have to resist the idea that we're in the dream and that we're of the dream, that this is what is real. We must try and force the mind into an awareness that it's the sleeper, as it were, the dreamer, the one watching the whole dream, that every character in here is you. That this separation is only because you view yourself as separated. These ideas of lower and higher consciousness are actually very fascinating because they actually change the way that you perceive the world. And you, become to, you come to understand that the world really is just a matter of perception, a matter of understanding. What you think of yourself will be what you project on everybody else. That's why if somebody scowls a little bit, you think they're angry with you. But in fact, they just got a bite on their heel by a scorpion that you didn't see. And you interpret that look based on why you would look that way, right? Or somebody says something to you, and they say it in the wrong tone to you. But to them... They don't know what you're talking about when you get angry. They get confused. What, what, I, oh, I didn't mean it that way. And then if you're smart, you back off and be like, oh, okay, well, I misunderstood. But if you're stubborn, you're like, no, yes, you did mean it that way. <laughs> and you continue that anger, you know, and you, you jump into it. So the essence of this Vedanta is that the reason for all virtue is that virtue is what leads us toward seeing that oneness, of perceiving that oneness. It's not that, that, that the sages, because of so much meditation and so much mind bending, have come to be able to force the idea that they're always thinking that the world is one. It's not like that. They actually have moved the furniture out of their mind so that they see one wide open space and they experience this world as oneness. When Thakur yelled at the, not yelled, but uh, laughed at the, the people standing on the grass, that, was, that it causes the grass pain you know, for them to stand on. It's because he felt the pain in the grass. You know, he felt the people standing on that. One day when he was sitting on the shore of the Ganga and that the boat went by and one of the servants on the boat was getting a beating. And the gospel says that the welts from that beating actually showed up on the back of Takor, on on his back. So it's, it's a reality. It's not a projection. We're the ones doing the projecting. We're the ones that are under hypnotism. You know, we are the ones that have a wrong idea of the way the world is, and because we exercise that idea 24/7 for our, most of our life, treating others as others and not not paying heed to that oneness in each of us, we see the world this way. Sri Gadanta said a very important thing. He said, "When when one of us sees a a beggar on the side of the street, we see a beggar who's suffering." He says, "When I see the man suffering." I suffer because I know myself and that man to be the same. So his, his service and his love, as we're going to talk about at some length this morning, is practiced from that space of brotherhood, that space of oneness, that space of unity, and not from a space of trying to help or, or change the world. It's this body and our desires that are enforcing, reinforcing all of these delusions on us. They keep us distracted from the bliss that's inside. You can't see it because you're busy chasing your desires. They've got you so long, I, you know, for the first, I remember one night in my apartment waking up when I was 20, oh no, I was 30, 30, 34 at that time, and that was almost that long ago, it seems like. But I woke up one night and just, I was so, I was so sad, I was so, I, well, depressed, but just unfulfilled. I couldn't imagine. I had I had been playing by all the rules. I went to school. I got good, fairly good grades. <laughs> I almost fibbed. I got fairly good grades. I enjoyed my classes. I got my degree. I went out and got my job. I got my house. I got my car. I had my circle of friends. Everything was as it should be, except me sitting in the middle of it, feeling completely empty, completely hollow. You know, I tell the story that at that time I kind of realized that even though I was making so much more money and had so many more things, I didn't actually have anything more than what I had in college when I lived in a single room. It's just that everything had gotten bigger. You know, my TV got big, my stereo got big, my car got big, my one room turned into a house, my little single futon that I used to throw on the floor became a big, you know, California king there in the room and my view which used to be of the wall of the house next door was now all of downtown but I had nothing more and I understood implicitly if I don't have anything different than I had way back then what did I go through all of that for (laughs) collecting all of this stuff and just building this empire of stuff around myself and still sitting in the middle of it alone. I would go out to the clubs and have all my fun and and, and raucous time, but I would always come home and be alone. The same me. I was always the same person after the distraction was finished. And that was the beginning of spiritual life for me when I realized that there was nothing out there that was actually different from what I already had and that it would just be a variation on a theme that was already failing me. And then I saw at that time, because I was 35, I began to realize I'm not gonna be able to keep up this pace for the rest of my life. I'm not gonna be able to work this hard at constant distraction when I'm 70 years old, you know? This body is not going to be able to attract the things that it enjoys when it's 75. And it began to, the whole world began to look very different to me at that time. I had no idea where to look or what to do or where to go for, I certainly didn't think I would find it in religion. You know And so I went out looking. So in that looking, we have to take a look at, at, at this world and the way that it plays out for us, the, the promises that it's making and breaking, and our constant willingness to forgive the broken promises in belief that one of them is going to be fulfilled and that's going to be that special one that the next woman that we meet or the next man that we meet is going to be the the Disney prince or the Disney princess, you know, and they're going to fill that missing spot inside, and suddenly we're going to be happy. I was so relieved for the first time in the media yesterday to see Keanu Reeves breaking that illusion. He said, it's selfish for you to go look for somebody to make you happy. He says, make yourself happy first, and then go look for somebody to share it with. That's the way the world works. Become fulfilled in yourself know this inner nature, and then go to share. Don't make the mistake of going into this world to take. Don't make that mistake. That which differentiates one thing from another is time, space, and causation. The differentiation is in the form and not in the substance. That's important to know and understand what that means. You know, when Takor says that you can make a small little mouse out of clay and you can make an elephant out of clay. In form, they're utterly different, completely different attributes, different purposes, different lifestyles, everything. But in essence, they're clay. They're both the same. And they talk about gold ornaments the same way, gold jewelry. It's all made out of gold, even though it takes many different forms. You are that same, that love, that intelligence, that existence, creating and created and played with in many, many, many forms. But all one. And it's that oneness that we want to touch. He says, you may destroy the form and it disappears forever, but the substance remains the same. You can never destroy the substance. Evolution is in nature, not in the soul. Evolution of nature, manifestation of the soul. So he's talking there. He's saying, you you are already that perfect, fulfilled, wonderful self but you've chosen to identify with the other voices in your mind, the voices of discontent and the voices of desire. And instead of reinforcing that that, that, that that inner love, instead of understanding that every relationship you've enjoyed, the love that you've enjoyed in that relationship came out of you. That's what you were feeling. That's what you were enjoying. And it was reflecting off of the person that you were with. And it's important to know that that's the nature of this maya, this this. Illusion is not the right word, but we're going to use it for now. He'll clarify it here because he says Maya is not the illusion as it is popularly interpreted. Maya is real, and yet it is not real in the way that we think it is real. It's real in that the real is behind it, gives it its appearance of reality. That which is real in Maya is the reality in and through Maya. Yet the reality is never seen, and hence that which is seen is unreal." and it has no real independent existence of itself, but is dependent upon the real for its existence. Maya, then, is a paradox, real and yet not real, an illusion yet not an illusion. He who knows the real sees in Maya not illusion but reality. He who knows not the real sees in Maya illusion and thinks it to be real. You know, the best way to describe what he's talking here in a very easy way is a movie, a you know, movie screen. You know, we've heard that before. You go to the movie theater, and really all you're looking at is a white screen reflecting colored light and an accompanying soundtrack. It's you who makes it real. You know, I was thinking yesterday, with the I was watching, actually, <laughs> the other night, I went over to uh, a friend's house here nearby, and we were watching some YouTube uh, Videos about uh, cats and and having a, a good laugh about it, but this uh, notion that that uh, in, in the in the video that we were watching, it was a dog watching on a big screen a movie, a Disney movie that had animated dogs and it. I guess it was called Pet Something or something. I don't know what it was, but anyway, whenever the dog was on the screen, the pet of the family would get right up in front of the TV and just sit there, and, and with all of its full attention, just watching everything on that screen as the dogs were running around. But then when, when the dogs weren't on the screen, the dog, laid back down again, had no interest. Because the dog, for the dog, he couldn't ascribe meaning to the colors that weren't dogs, that, that his mind didn't project a dog onto. He couldn't He couldn't see that. He couldn't identify with that. So he had no story to apply to it. So it was meaningless for him. But when the dogs came on, that he knew and he could project himself all over those dogs, understand what they were all about. So when you go see a movie, you're not actually seeing a movie, you're actually seeing your own story because you provide all of the projection in that movie. You see what I'm saying? There's just colored light on a white screen. Your mind is discerning, oh, that's a person, that's a man, and that's a woman. And when they're in relationship there, colored light can't have relationship on a screen. What it does is it reminds you about your relationships certain aspects of your relationship. And so when they're fighting, you remember fighting with your partner and you project the feelings. You tell the story as the light plays on the screen. And when that fight is over, you remember your fight being over and you feel that happiness and that relief. Or when that relationship ends and you feel you you remember your relationship ending and that pain and you're crying like a baby you know, into the popcorn box because you are projecting. So you see, when you go to the movie, you are the movie. You are providing the story. They are just providing a series of light and sound that's going to remind you of it and call it all up in sequence. And so when you've finished, all you've done is projected your story on, the, on these, these colored lights in the theater. Never aware of the white screen that is the constant, unchanging self that's behind the movie. You see... So that's, that's what we have to do. We have to go to the movie. And, and the way like, I think of when I went to see Alien for the first time, I was in 11th grade. <laughs> that movie was horrifying. I never went to another horror movie because of that. And in that movie, I actually got so scared, I went over and stood by the wall, which they had curtains hanging on in those days, most theaters. And any time that horrible alien thing, when that, it wasn't actually when the alien thing came on, it was when the music changed, and you knew... Something was about to happen. I was standing by the wall and I would pull, pull the curtain around in front of me. It was dark, nobody could see me. I pulled the curtain in front of my face and would hide, like it's just a movie, it's just a movie, it's just a movie, it's just a movie, it's just a movie. <laughs> not knowing that 20 years later I would be doing exactly that same thing in the in, in the shrine, you know, you know, saying my mantra over and over, it's not real, it's not real, it's not real, this world is not real. The same idea. You have to you have to break yourself out of the hypnotism. Stop believing the movie to be real. So you do whatever is necessary. So the practices for breaking out of a movie are taking the curtain and putting it in front of your face and repeating it's just a movie, or putting the bo- popcorn box in front of your face and just looking into the empty bottom, thinking about having more. Anything to break the spell of the movie. That's what your spiritual practice is about: breaking the spell of this movie, so that you can realize it's just a movie and that this story is only me, me projecting all of this, that I know nothing of anyone in this room except what I project on them. Even when they try and share something with me, I'm just taking their words and projecting my meaning, which is a link to all of my experience and all of my samskaras. It has nothing to do with them. It's just a projection, a 3D movie of great interest, So the master says, to enjoy this movie properly, you've got to take, he says, first tie the idea, no, not the idea, he says, first tie the non-dual knowledge in the corner of your cloth and then do whatever you like. So he's saying, take this notion, take this understanding of the white screen and when you go to the movie house, tie it in the corner of your dhoti. Now the reason he says that is because most of the time with dhoti's you don't have any pockets. So when you have to take something with you, you tie it down in the corner of the, of the dhoti, so that way it'll be with you all the time. I push it under the rolling waistband, it's, so that's where my non-duality would be, the, the waistband. But this idea that, that take this notion, inform yourself about it. Now, what does that look like? How do you take the idea of non-duality, or how do you take non-duality and tie it into the, the waistband of your dhoti? It's going around always understanding, I'm one with you. I'm one with you. When you hurt, I hurt. When you're angry, I feel it. I know it. I suffer for it." It's going around with that knowledge and letting it inform your day-to-day activity. He says, happiness, we see, is what everyone is seeking for. You know, we're going around, uninformed in the world, trying to find this happiness, trying to find meaning in this movie, not understanding that it's all being projected out of our own self that we can't go get anything more than what we have, that we are the sum total of all we could ever have. You know, I, One of the things I used to talk with Swami Prabhutananda about computers, because I was really into them. I was a software engineer. So I used to try to understand Vedanta through the lens of a software engineer. And uh, you know, I, I talked to Swami Prabhutananda about... Uh, I've forgotten what I was going to say there. This happiness, this searching after uh, the happiness in the world. Mom's not going to give me that idea back. She said, We see that this happiness is what everyone is looking for, but the majority seek it in things which are evanescent and not real, things that are constantly changing. You know, we try and find something in the sand to build our house on out there. You know, in, in, we, we believe that Disney movie, and so we go find our, our princess or our prince, and we marry them, and we expect this, this person to become a, a prop for our life, holding up our own happiness, holding up our own fulfillment. And that's why divorce rates run in the 60%, because ain't nobody going to be able to take on that responsibility in any real kind of way. You know, This person is going to be in good moods, and they're going to be in bad moods, and their mind is going to change, and their character is going to change, and their personality is going to change. And you're going to have to live with that for the rest of your life. It's not going to give it to you. You know, you're 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 gonna wake up and think, This guy's not making me happy anymore. This woman's not fulfilling me anymore. I need to get rid of this and go find my Disney princess. This was the wrong one. This was a wicked witch. <laughs> you know, I gotta toss it out. So we keep going on, we keep trying. Oh, it's not this one, so I'll try another one. Not that one, I'll try this one. He says, No happiness was ever found in the senses. If one of us could learn that simple sentence this morning. Everybody would, in here would be changed. If just one of us could, could prove that point true, no happiness, or understand that point, no happiness, no happiness, not some happiness, not temporary happiness, no happiness has ever been found in the senses. There never was a person who found happiness in the senses or enjoyment in the senses. Happiness is only found in the spirit. Therefore, the highest utility for mankind is to find this happiness, to touch this happiness in the spirit. And what is that spirit? That spirit is that notion of Satchitananda. It's that, that ocean of love that's within you, untouched, because your back is to it. You know, because your back is to it, looking out through the senses, distracted, confused, you know, enticed. So you don't see that ocean of love. You can't, you can't bathe in that ocean of love because it's behind you. You have your back turned on it. That ocean of intelligence. That ocean of existence. Inform yourself by constantly remembering, that is who I am. Always, when you think you're an engineer and you're handing a business card, your business card on there should say somewhere, Satchitananda. <laughs> you know, if it's not there, you should handwrite it somewhere. You know, that's, that's who you are first. That's who you are First. Everything else comes after that. I saw this kind of happiness for the first time in 1999 when I was traveling through India. I was following the, the Ganga River from its mouth all the way up to uh, where it comes out of the glacier at Gamuk. And on the way up there, Rishikesh is the city I was in, we were walking through the jungle, and uh, there was a, um, <laughs> I was with my friend Philip. And we were literally in the middle of the woods. We'd been walking for an hour and a half or so. And we're in the middle of the woods and this beautiful Western woman comes walking down the trail, very nicely dressed in a sari. They're very, very much like your sari, Bonnie, actually nice and colorful. (laughs) And so she was walking along. She was walking along that forest path and she comes up to us and out of the blue, this woman says to Philip and I, are are you here to see the the guru? And we're like, no, (laughs) we're hiking. (laughs) And she says, oh, well, about a quarter mile down the road in front of you, or down the path in front of you, is an orange gate. Go through it. And then she walked off. And so Philip and I kept walking, and we were talking more about her, like, what, the, <laughs> what, was, what was that? And we came upon the orange gate, and we stopped and we looked at him. he's like, well, do you want to go through? And I was like, how can we not go through? So we went through that little gate, and this old Sadu. oh gosh, he was so old, and yet he had all the spry energy of a, of a teenager, He came out of his couture, saw us, took his walking stick, and as fast as he could hobble over to us and so joyfully grabbed both of our hands in his with the staff and was like pulling us, come, because he didn't speak a word of English. He pulled us over to his bathing god and told us, pointed at the water and told us to go take a bath in the water. So we both jumped into the river, came out, and he was waiting, and he pulled us into his couture where there was two grass mats sitting with holes in them and his grass mat also had a hole in it. And he sits down, we sit down, and he uh, just begins chanting. And uh, of course, in those days, I didn't know what he was chanting, I didn't know what language, I didn't know what, what the content was at all. But he sat there chanting, and as he chanted, he began kind of swaying, and his face just lit up, ever happier and happier and happier, and his smile got bigger and bigger, and the tears of, just began to dribble down the outside of his eyes, and he was really just swinging back and forth and just just completely absorbed and so full of joy. I sat there enthralled in just his presence, in just his happiness, which was big enough for me to feel in the same room with him. I sat there for an hour with him, every day for ten days, never knowing what he was saying and never able to get enough of what he experienced and he was knowing that and seeing that for the first time really informed my eventual moving into the monastery because I saw myself. I understood myself. I was like, wow, that moment when I was sitting in my room and understood, understanding that everything had just gotten bigger in light of this man made sense. That I had, compl- I had gone down the wrong trail completely because this man had not done any of that, had nothing. He literally, his room, his, the, his entire house where he lived was the size of our men's room in the monastery there. That was the whole room. He lived there. And every day, some rich man brought him a single big bowl of kitchery to, to have for his lunch. And he could sit there and produce more joy and more bliss in my life than anything I had ever had, anything I had ever seen. And I remember it was out of, his, out of his couture one day that I was walking back to, to uh, downtown Rishikesh with Philip when I told him that I was going to join a monastery because of this. Because it was clear, this man had found something I had never touched, and I wanted it. And he was a monk, so I would be a monk. Now, I had no idea what I was getting into. So I'm still trying to figure that out after all of these years. But if you can just understand... This rat race out there, play it, play in it, be in it, no worries. But be in it knowing that it's not what it seems. That at the end of the day, it's not important. What's important is you. Did you love? Were you unselfish? Did you care? And yes, I'm saying that one more time. (laughs) Again, running through that same notion. Because that is the most important thing in your life. Not how good work is going. Not whether you get that promotion or not. Not whether you get that big research breakthrough. Not whether you win that game. Not whether you, you know, any X, Y, or Z. What's important is you. Are you loving? Are you caring? Are you unselfish? And are you practicing that all the time by knowing that you are everyone? Knowing that their suffering is your suffering not intellectually, feeling their pain. You know, there's that. There's that. <laughs> Philip says it all to me. I feel your pain, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I feel your pain. Mean that. You know, when you see somebody hurting, stop. Stop all of your thinking about why or what they're doing. Stop wondering about whether they deserve it or not. Stop wondering all of that stuff and feel. Put yourself there. Put their clothes on your body. Feel the dirt. Feel the grime. Sit there on the street. Imagine yourself with no place to go but there. Feel the humiliation of sitting there and asking for money from one person after another. Put yourself there. Understand that at the end of the day, the truth is that it is you there. That that same you that's enjoying all that you're enjoying... Is not enjoying through this, through this soul, through this experience. And let it wake up into you, wake up in you that joy. Because, like I said, all of this is our projection. It's all coming from inside. If we're not aware of what's inside, we'll be confused about what we're manifesting. We'll have no idea what's going on. And we're making a movie. Our life is that movie. We're playing with the colors, and we're playing with the ideas and the emotions. Vivekananda says, Human language is the attempt to express the truth that is within. I am fully persuaded that a baby whose language consists of unintelligible sounds is attempting to express the highest philosophy, only the baby has not the organs to express it nor the means. The difference between the language of the highest philosophers and the utterances of babies is one of degree and not of kind. What you call the most correct, systematic, mathematical language of the present time and the hazy, mystical, mythological languages of the ancients differ only in degree. All of them have a grand idea behind it, which is, as it were, struggling to express itself. So your life is that struggle. Your language, everything that you say and everything that you do in this movie is your struggle to express yourself. So it's important to know what that self is. It's important to know, because it's your movie and it's about you. And if you're pretending to be something and telling the movie about that, it's never going to be authentic. It's never going to be real. It's never going to be sincere and earnest. When you start telling a movie of your love for people, for animals, for plants and trees, for walks in the park... When you start telling a movie about unselfishness, telling a story about unselfishness, about giving, about caring, about reaching out, about nurturing, when you're telling a story about the profundity of being, that's your movie. That's how you're authentic. That's how you're real. You know, I, 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 was, in the, I was posted at the Hollywood Center for a while, for a little over a year, and there's a lot of theater people there a lot of movie people there the industry is all around you and uh, I had a, a fairly good friend who was a director who uh, a film director and I had met this woman who was an acrobat for Cirque du Soleil and uh, uh, I introduced them to each other and after as soon as I got their conversation going the first the first five minutes of their conversation was them kind of sending lobbing out information balls to kind of figure out what the other person's position in the industry hierarchy was oh i worked with such and such on this project oh yes i worked with him once now i'm working with such and such on this project and i watched this go back and forth and i realized god they're sizing each other up you know because their movie is about being a great director or about being a great acrobat those movies are never are never fulfilling because that's not who they are. They can tell a story of a great lover who's an acrobat. That'll be a good story. They could tell about a director who was super unselfish. That would be a great story. Because at least they, that Sat Ananda, would be in that movie. But if you tell a story that's not authentically you, which means it's not about loving, it's not about unselfishness, it's not about caring, it's not about presence and being and intelligence, then it becomes pretentious and you start have to sort you have to you have to make up little lines every now and then. Oh yeah, I worked with him once too. sort of. <laughs> I served him lunch at McDonald's, you know. It's like you have to start making things what they're not to kind of prop up your false story about who you are because that's not who you are, you know. And we get caught in that. So pick a movie that's about you and tell that story. Live out that story in a conscious way. No movie, no scene in any movie is ever just filmed at random with no idea of what's coming and how it's going to go together. And yet that's how we're running our movies, right? You just wake up and you kind of just take the day as it comes. Whoa, didn't expect that. Oof, better set that down. Oh, what's going on over here? And our whole life becomes reaction, especially these days, because there's so many things being lobbed at us. He did what? Oh, my God. You watch the news at night and your emotions are just being yanked here and then yanked over there and then pushed over here and finally you just turn it off you're like, I'm going to bed, you know, and that's the best you can do. So pick a movie and be conscientious about the way that you live. Design your day to tell your story, to tell the story of Satchitananda. It can include all the things that it was going to include anyway. Just make the story different. Make what it's about a little bit different. It's not about your office. It's not about, about your mowing the lawn. It's not about how well your kids are doing in school. It's about how much you loved them. It's about how much worship you did in the yard when you, when, you, when you weeded. Did you do it to get it finished? Or did you do it to offer to the beloved? Yeah. That's your story. That's your movie. That's who you are. We must not forget that we want growth. Even in all relative truth, more than truth itself, we want the exercise. That is our life. <laughs> And that's in his fourth fourth letter or fourth lecture on practical Vedanta, uh, and uh, Swami, our visiting Swami this week mentioned this, and I just like that idea that the scripture says even more than relative truth. What is relative truth? You know, that I'm a man, I'm 54, this, that, and the other. That's relative truth. Any knowledge, anything you learned in college or or high school or whatever, that's relative knowledge. He says more than all of that, we want growth, and this life. Is about exercising that growth. So turn your life into a practice. He was doing that chart, that spreadsheet, for those of you who were here. He was talking, you know, for, for strength, you need two things, food and exercise, right? You eat, and then you go work out. That's how you make get, become strong. And it's the same thing in spiritual life. You eat, you go read the scriptures, you go talk to holy people, you go hang out at the Vedanta Center or or even better, go down and, and serve somebody somehow. You go and you and, and then you, you exercise, you do it, you put it into practice. Your meditation, you sit down with you sit down with this with your with your mantra and your mind that's already wandering everywhere. And you just take that mantra, you you eat it, that's your food. And then you exercise by putting the mind on that alone. So everything that you want to do, think about it. What do I need to eat for this, and how do I exercise it? That's your practice. That's the, way you, that's the way you grow strong in this world. That's how your movie is going to be told successfully. Decide what it is, then eat what you need to eat, and do the work that you need to do. And only then will you be strong. It doesn't happen by accident. None of us is going, well, I can't say that. Mother might just do it. Maybe I say it, and then Mother will prove me wrong. Nobody accidentally realizes God. (laughs) It's a lot of work. Why? Because love demands a lot of work. Unselfishness is a lot of work. A lot of giving. A lot of caring. Fortunately, you've got an infinite amount. Fortunately, there's no end to your capability to care and to love and to serve this world. This religion is here to help us. This place is here to help us. These pictures and statues... We project on them the beloved that we know inside, this ideal that we know exists, you know, that has an existence. Why? Because your mind can't this needs a lot of backup. Your mind can't think of something that's not real. The unreal things that your mind can think of are just composed of real things in weird in weird compositions. You can't come up with something in your mind that wasn't put into your mind, that's not made of pieces that came in through your senses, not made somehow of the food that you've eaten. So this whole fact that we that we can recognize an ideal, having actually never seen it, that we can know perfect love, that we can know perfect devotion, that we can know and understand an idea of of oneness of all things, there's nothing out there telling us this. You know, that, 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 that I mean, there's everything out there telling us the opposite of this. But we know this inside. We bring this into the world, this notion of infinity, this notion of immortality. It couldn't have come from outside because there's nothing immortal out there. So how do you know about immortality? You know, there's, no, there's nothing out there that's infinite. How do you know infinity? This is part and parcel of who you are. He says religion is not a doctrine, it's not a rule, it's a process, that's all. He says don't make it more than that. Religion we've put on a pedestal and covered it in velvet and gilted it in gold and called it important. He says it's just a process. Doctrines and rules are for exercise. So that's the exercise that we're doing to make ourselves strong. By that exercise, we get strong and at last break the bonds and become free. Doctrine is of no use except for gymnastics. Through exercise, the soul becomes perfect. That's Vivekananda in his article on Muhammad. So we keep these things in perspective. We keep them in their proper place. He says, doing work is not religion. But work done rightly leads to freedom. In reality, he's talking about Patanjali Yoga here, so he's getting a few ideas in one space. In reality, all pity is darkness. Because whom to pity? Can you pity God? And is there anything else? Thank God for giving you this world as a moral gymnasium to help you in your development. But never imagine that you can help this world. Be grateful to him who curses you. Because he gives you a mirror to show you what cursing is, and also a chance to practice self-restraint. So bless him and be glad. Without exercise, power cannot come out. Without the mirror, we cannot see ourselves. So he's made this world, he's showing us this world is a mirror for you to see yourself in. If you don't know who you are, you're going to pick all kinds of random things in the mirror and react to them in different ways. You're going to be caught by that hook when that person yells at you, you're going to be like, (laughs) <laughs> you're going to get caught up and you're going to blow up and you're going to yell back because you haven't figured out your role in the movie that that is you that you can understand their point of anger if you could for a moment stop your own selfish perspective and move into their perspective for a moment you know hear what they're saying hear what they're yelling about I hope she doesn't listen to this tape but uh, there was a <laughs> there was a nun in, in Hollywood You know that uh, I I was brand new, I was there less than a week, and I had been given this task of of designing a new sound system for the temple. I had no idea what I had been assigned, the trouble that I was gonna go through. Anyway, something happened and something got done, because I was experimenting and coming up with possibilities, and she had gotten offended by something that I had done, by where I had put the speakers or where I had run the cables or something. Now, mind you, I had never met her (laughs) before, so I'm in the kitchen and she comes in. You, I wanted to talk to you. I can't believe that you went and put that speaker right up there in front of Takor's picture in the shrine. I couldn't see anything and I almost fell over the I was like, Whoa, 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 what's going on? I don't even know you. why are you angry at me? What 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 have we done? Back up, back up. You know, and I literally told her, I said, "Look, I said we have to start over because at this point it's only it's only entertaining for me to you know to see this kind of anger out of nowhere. I, I won't be able to take it seriously. I'm going to have to laugh." I said, "So let's back up and start again. What has happened? You know, what has happened? That's how you don't get caught. You know, that's how you don't get caught. It's that Buddhist principle that I like: not every gift has to be received. And just because somebody's angry with you doesn't mean you have to receive it." You can just keep that anger where it is and be like, okay, all right, so what's the problem? You know, you stay calm, you stay respectful, you stay loving, you don't get caught because it has nothing to do with you. You are her, you are him, you are that. That's how you take it and tie it into the corner of your dhoti. You take that idea of oneness and you remind yourself in that moment of passion. We are one already. He goes on to say, do you not hear what your modern scientific men are saying? What is the cause of evolution? Desire. The animal wants to do something but does not find the environment favorable and therefore develops a new body. Who develops it? The animal itself, its will. You have developed from the lowest amoeba. Continue to exercise your will and it will take you higher still. The will is almighty. If it is almighty, you may say, why cannot I do everything? But you are thinking only of your little self. Look back on yourselves from the state of the amoeba to this human being. Who made all of that? You, your own will. Can you deny then that it is almighty? That which has made you come up so high can make you go higher still. What you want is character, strengthening of the will. Okay, so we're getting a little bit more specific here. What is the exercise that we're doing in this world? It's strengthening will, strengthening character, purifying minds so we know what our will is, what is it that we're really wanting, really looking for. He says, this is the whole history of man. Finer and finer becomes the veil. More and more light shines out from behind. For it is its nature to shine. It cannot be known. In vain we try to know it. Were it knowable, it would not be what it is, for it is the eternal subject. Knowledge is a limitation. Knowledge is objectifying. He is the eternal subject of everything, the eternal witness in this universe, your own self. So you see, we can't ever know it because we can't see it. And why can't we see it? Because we are it. And this is that, that wonderful uh, example of your face. You've never seen your face. You've only seen reflections of it. And those were backwards, <laughs> by the way. So you see, if this world is the mirror, it's in, it, in its entirety, it is your reflection. And that which it's reflecting on is unchanging. It's the eternal self. The mirror is unchanged by all the things that reflect in it in a day. It remains a mirror, pure, untouched, unsoiled. None of those colors get stuck. Your your mirror doesn't turn red over, over time if you keep showing it red every day. You are like that. You inside are this unchanging self, ever pure, ever free, ever beloved. And everything that you do is your reflection. Everything that you experience in this world is a reflection. Know who you are. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you're a functioning body and a mind. Know that the whole conversation is you. Both sides of it are you. Everybody involved in the conflict is you. And let that change the way you deal with it. Let that change the way you react to it. Let that change the way you are in it. All the work you do is subjective, is done for your own benefit. God has not fallen into a ditch for you or me to help him out by building a hospital or something of that sort. He allows you to work. He allows you to exercise your muscles in this great gymnasium. Not in order to help him, but that you may help yourself. That's an important thing. Because, you know, in the beginning when all those rules are coming up in your practice, you know, What do you mean I can't, you know, smoke that or drink that or do that? Why is God just always trying to restrict me? That's because you don't know who you are, and you see those things as a restriction, having no idea that if you knew who you were, you would understand how tight that restriction is, how how suffocating that maintenance is. You know, I used to throw a lot of dinner parties when I before I joined the monastery. I had a great social life going because I needed it to stay distracted <laughs> at the level I had to be distracted. And I had this wonderful persona that I had completely developed, this this personality, you know, that was bubbly and funny and engaged, you know, and I would throw these dinner parties, and my whole thing of the dinner party was just walking around making sure there was enough of everything and throwing out a little tit for tat or a little piece of witticism here, a little entertaining statement there. You know, keep this conversation going. Okay, it's going. I'll move on and inject in this one over here. And, and, and that was my life. Every, every aspect of my life had had something along those lines going on in it. It wasn't until I had been in the monastery, <laughs> and I remember sitting at a monastic table, a table of monks, when you're a dinner party idiot like I was, is bizarre because the conversation is dying all the time, and it just stops, and nobody's saying anything. And I can remember for my first year or two in the monastery, I was so high-strung, I would get so tense at the dinner table because the conversation would die, and nobody would be saying anything, and everybody would just be eating, And I had this need inside to keep it going, to, to, to bring it back up, bring up something interesting to say, you know, something to do. And I noticed that the things I would bring up, Swami would never react to them. He would never have an opinion about that. he wouldn't have an idea about that. And I'd be like, "Ah." Oh. And after a while, Greg, it got so bad, Greg actually noticed, he was one of the, the other Brahmachari, Chagisha Chaitanya. He actually noticed, and he pulled me aside, and he said, you know, it's okay to be quiet at the table. <laughs> <laughs> there, there doesn't have to be a conversation going. And I, at that point, hadn't really even been aware that that was how I felt. I hadn't been aware that I was so nervous in silence that I couldn't stand it to be quiet that i had to keep distractions happening all the time and after i got that little bit of insight boy that whole wall just cascaded down and i realized how much work it was to be me <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> how much effort i was spending on being entertaining and being you know as handsome as i could possibly muster given what i've been given and you know picking out the right things to wear and always coming up with the right things to say and picking photos on the wall that i knew would look good to everybody that visited and buying the right furniture that would be impressive and yet not overly expensive and all of this stuff and i realized man delusion is a huge amount of work it's incredible and then i became a monk and little by little i'm sort of trying to still become one you know let go stop this it's not necessary You are that. You have all that you need. That which people are going to love in you exists in you in its fullness. It doesn't need to be developed. It doesn't need to be fixed. It doesn't need to be decorated. It needs to be set free. It needs to be allowed to come out through your mouth without going through the mind of selfishness. It needs to be able to help that person without counting the cost before you do. It's being willing to reach down and touch somebody who's filthy dirty without entertaining the thought they're filthy dirty. I saw that in a, in a video about Mother Teresa when she was working in Calcutta. You know, she was clean. She had her white dhoti on. And she would see someone laying in the street filthy, <laughs> beyond words. She wouldn't even pause. She just bent down in this particular scene, just bent down and picked up this old man in her arms and carried him herself to the hospital that she had started. You know, because she knew who she was. She knew who she was. And she had learned to let that love that she was come out unconditioned by mind. Unselected by likes and dislikes. You know, just let it come out unconditioned, free, Because that's who you are. That's what we're up to. That's what we're trying to do. Blessed are we that we are given this privilege of working for the beloved, not of helping him. Cut out this word help from your mind. You cannot help. It is blasphemy. You are here yourself at his pleasure. Do you mean to say that you help him? You worship. When you give a morsel of food to the dog, you worship the dog as God. God is in that dog. He is the dog. He is all and in all. We are allowed to worship him. Stand in that reverent attitude to the whole universe. And then will come perfect non-attachment. This is your duty. This is the proper attitude of work. This is the secret taught by Karma Yoga. It is through that kind of service and that kind of knowing, keeping that 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 universality, that oneness, that one without a second, that idea in it tied close to you, with you at all times, always handy, so that you will always know that you're loving, you're worshiping. To express love is to worship, to care is to worship, to give is to worship. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out. You will be destroyed by each other. So it's very careful to... Very important. You know, this afternoon we're going to have a workshop on mental health. And I hope you can come. Please come if you have a moment, if you have an hour free at one o'clock. Come and be a part of this discussion. Why why am I so adamant on that? Because we as a community need to open up about these things. We need to start talking about these things, not holding these these issues, these personal issues into ourselves or hiding them within the family or keeping them deep at the home. We're here for each other. We need to be able to trust each other. We need to be able to encourage each other. You know, we've we've, we've lost some people to mental health in our family here. And we don't want to lose any more. And so it would be good for us to get the tools and to get the understanding so that we can see it in each other, identify it in each other, and worship each other by being kind and by being open and by being... in. Uh, strength to one another don't 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 fall into that trap where we become a group that judges each other you know i've said this before because i just don't want to be a part of something like that you know it's not something where we watch what each other's doing oh they brought that or she brought that or he did that or they did that or they're so they're too they're too uh, familiar with the swami you know oh look they didn't touch his feet when they when they talked to him Oh, that wasn't a full pranam. I didn't see that chest touch the ground. <laughs> it's like these things, they're in us, aren't they? These notions are in us. Kill them. Kill them, lest we be devoured by them. Begin to love. The fruit of the spirit, the fruit of living with the notion of, the, of yourself as Satchitananda, as you being one with all of this, the fruit of this is love, is joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. The flesh and the mind, why crucify them? Why? Because they're the thing that are, making, that are preventing you from being able to love without condition. They are the thing that's preventing you from loving without condition. You know, if you, if you are a man and, you, and, you, and you're, you're developing your life by enjoying the ladies, you've objectified them. You've made them eternally separate from yourself. And you won't be able to love them all equally with, with, with a real heart because you'll only like the ones that are between 25 and 29 and have the right hair color and are wearing the right dress and are making the right amount of money, you know, it's like all of those things. You see, when, when Takor says that lust and greed built this world, he means it. That's not, that's, that's not a theory. The reason that we see difference in each other is because we're using each other. You know, we've identified ourselves as men and women. We like this. We don't like that. So we like the people who like this, and we don't like the people who like that. You know, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, and so when I see somebody who thinks differently, I can't love them the same way that I love someone who thinks like me. Why? Because I'm being stupid. Because I'm being stupid. I've identified with mind and with body and forgotten the unity, forgotten the humanity, forgotten to care and to love. And it's that lack of caring and loving that is creating all of this division, it's mind alone that separates, categorizes, and divides. Heart always unifies. Heart always builds up. So this is what he's saying. He said we have to run to win the prize. In Corinthians, his letter to Corinthians, I'll close with this. Paul says, do you, know, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Now, fortunately, if there's only one, there's only one to get the prize. So there's not two. That's the point here. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get that prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Strict training? You're in strict training. It better be obvious. (laughs) You're in strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for this prize. So we need to have that kind of intensity. You are all Olympians. (laughs) Train like an Olympian. Eat for success. (laughs) Do everything as an exercise for this, that you might become an unconditioned, unconditional lover of self in all, a unifying factor that gave everything you thought you were, gave it up to be what you are, to be that lover, that unselfish, kind-hearted person who managed to help through worship. (laughs) Let's take a moment to think about these things. He says a wonderful poem, The Woman I Love. Because the woman I love lives inside of you, I lean as close to your body as I can with my words. And I think of you all the time, dear pilgrim, because the one I love goes with you wherever you go. Hafiz will always be near. If you sat before me, wayfarer, with your aura bright with your many charms, my lips could resist rushing to you and needing to befriend your blushed cheek, But my eyes can no longer hide the wondrous fact of who you really are. The beautiful one whom I adore has pitched his royal tent inside of you, so I will always lean my heart as close to your soul as I can. That's the fruit we're looking for.